Let's play. My technology is judging me. And it's bad enough I have to go through life being judged by others. Something I've, I've stood tall, I've been the person that I want to be, I don't care what other people think, but day in and day out, people are judging me. And I get that. They judge us all. It's, it's, it's really no surprise. And, and you kind of accept it, especially if you want to be different, if you want to be unique, if you spend, want to stand out. You will be judged. People think they know you when they really don't know you, and will take a look at me, and you've really got no clue, people. Maybe you're starting to learn if you're listening to this show. But to have my technology judging me really is upsetting. Because not only are they... Is it they? Is it a they? Is it an it? I think it's an it. And not only is it judging me, but it's, it's wrong. It's misjudging me. And I've spent a lot of time and effort, and I put a lot into cultivating the image that I have. Uh, emoting, giving off the vibe that I give off when I walk down the street and people see me. I don't mind being misjudged that way, because that's the way I want to be judged. But for my technology to do pop-up ads that clearly are reading what I am inputting into my technology and get it all wrong is really upsetting. I'm a car guy. I'm a motorcycle guy. I'm a rock guy. I'm a gun guy. But for some reason, my technology thinks that I'm a Broadway show guy because the only ads popping up on my computer are ads for shows. One after the other. And it's not like once in a while in between the ads for motorcycles, cars, guns, and rock and roll. It's nothing but Broadway shows, particularly musicals. Now I realize that in recent years I have done Broadway. I was in Rock of Ages. And I realize I did write a musical, The Rock and Roll Christmas Tale, which ran in Chicago last year and is going to be in Toronto this year, holiday season. And I realized there's an album called D Does Broadway. But this should not, in and of itself, define me as a person. But maybe this is a warning of sorts. Maybe this, maybe this, when your technology is starting to say, hey man, you're changing. <laughs> hey man, you're not the guy you think you are. You're not who you once were. Maybe it's time for a little, you know, maybe I need to spend a little more time on the motorcycle and car websites and researching the latest handgun technology uh, and, and a little more rock and roll and a little less looking for, I don't know why my computer thinks that I'm into 
that I'm Mr. Show Business. You know, that it's obviously got me mistaken for somebody from the West Village of New York or Santa Monica Boulevard. And not that there's anything wrong with it, but that's not what I'm all about. But M.D. Snyder, this is, well, obviously you're listening to D. Snyder's Snyder comments. uh, So you know, this is the beauty of the podcast as well. I've done radio for 20 years, so I'm so used to billboarding and saying, you're listening to Snyder Comp, you know, because you have to do that on regular radio because people are tuning in, tuning out. But with a podcast, people find Snyder comments, they click on it, they say, I'm listening to it, they know exactly what they're getting, and they probably read the description of the show so they know who the guests are as well. So this is a nice thing, because it's trying to squeeze in those billboards, that's what they call them, trying to squeeze in those things, reminding people, you're listening to Podcast One. It's just a, a real pain in the ass, and it's a real conversation destroyer, because when you're interviewing, when you're talking to people normally, and I like to have conversations you don't in between go, and it's me, and you know, you're at D. Snyder's house. You, know, you, don't, you, don't tell, you don't have to remind people where they are. But on radio, terrestrial radio in particular, you need to do that, but not in the podcast world. Now, very excited about today's show, because in a little while, where is it? Did I ever click this screen? Hey, I didn't. I didn't start the clock, so I don't know how many minutes I got. I know. I'm going to say it's about 10. How about that? Because I thought I have a countdown clock here, so uh, and uh, I haven't done it. So let's see if we can start this thing. I can't. Hey, give me a high sign. All right, that's good. Give me, give me like the two-minute warning, okay, Ray? Talking, about, talking to Ray, the producer over there. What good is a clock if you don't start it? Um, so on today's show, I'm going to be talking with Wayne Kramer. The, uh, you know, the word legendary is bandied about excessively in my mind. Uh, but when you talk about Wayne Kramer from the MC5, uh, it, 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 it's, it's not bandied about. That's not the right way to say that. But you know what I'm talking about. This man is a legend. And, uh, but it's, I'm not here to talk to him. I didn't bring him in to talk to him about the MC5, though there will obviously be some conversation about that. Uh, because, you know, when we, a legendary band like that, such an influential band, of course you want to talk about that. But I really brought him in because I want to discuss Politics in rock and roll, Uh, in particular, politics in rock and roll, because we see it a lot, and the question is, is there a place for politics in rock and roll? And I'm going to open that up, and and Wayne is, to my memory, as as a young man, uh, as a young man, uh, the MC5 were so politically charged. Coming out of the late 60s, um, yeah, everybody was saying against the war, and it was that kind of thing, you know, Country Joe and the Fish. Got, and, people, and the young listeners are going, Country Joe and the who? No, yeah, the fish. Yeah, I'm old. Yeah, I should just have a sound bite. I want a button that said, I'm old, and I'll press it every now and then when I make some reference that's from the dark ages. But you had, you know, saying, you know, well, it's one, two, three, what are we fighting for? You know, they beat all that kind of political rhetoric. But the MC5 were actually living it, dealing with it in a very tangible, very physical way in Detroit with, being, with their White Panther movement. And, I mean, when you talk about, about having their hands in politics, uh, well, this is something I'll talk to Wayne about, it, it, to the point where it was almost overshadowing the band. And, 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 that's, you know, and that's something I, I want to get into with Wayne as well. So I'm going to bring him in a little while. 
But, uh, and we'll discuss that, and Wayne's doing some great charity work, and uh, I want to get into that a little bit as well, uh, because uh, people need to know about what he's doing, but also just about the need for people to do more. And, you know, and particularly uh, people in the, in the entertainment industry, in, in the business. You know, for my money, you know, less political rhetoric, more charitable work could go a long way. But we'll talk about that when I bring Wayne in, Wayne Kramer, in a little bit. Um, so one thing I do want to discuss is uh, the announcement uh, a few weeks ago of Twisted Sisters' farewell shows. Now, that's the first thing I want to point out. They're shows, people. It's not a tour. Our press release said farewell shows. We have not toured in decade, decades. We don't tour. We do shows. And um, we put out a press release that Twist Sister is announcing uh, in 2016, it will be their 40 and fuck it shows. 40 and fuck it being 40 years since me, Eddie, El Jada, and JJ French joined together in 1976. And... Form the band that people that started to move Twisted Sister forward in a, in a direction of original material and, and, and became the band that everybody knows. The three of us, Mark Mendoza uh, and the late AJ Pirro, joined uh, subsequently a few years uh, later. But uh, we decided that we were calling it a day. And um, this, by the way, was announced after AJ Pirro's passing in March. And a lot of people thought it was because of A.J. Pirro's passing. But the fact of the matter is, we had already discussed this. And we had already decided to call it a day. Um, and we hadn't announced it yet. And a couple of weeks after we had decided amongst ourselves that 2016 would be it, A.J. Pirro passed away. And it kind of just sort of underlined, underscored, uh, you know, our point that maybe it's time. Because unlike many other bands... The five members of, of Twist Sisters that everybody knows have been doing all the reunion shows since we got back together in 2002, I think it was, uh, for the, uh, yeah, for, I think it was for uh, the 9-11 show we did uh, for Eddie Trunk, uh, New York Steel. Uh, that was when we re reunited. And since then, it's been the five of us, the ones that people know from all of our, our albums, the five core members. Uh, we never played, they never played as Twisted Sister without me. I never tried to play as Twisted Sister without them. And there was many people saying, well, why don't you just use the name? You can use the name. Axl Rose does it. You know, no, well, just because he does it doesn't make it right. This plays to my whole thing about it's a band and have respect for the band, have respect for the guys in the band, have respect for the team that made the music, that made the name of the band. And you don't just go off and take the name uh, even though I believe that I could have, J.J. French, my guitar player who owns the rights to the name, would argue that point, but I always believed I could if I wanted to, but I never thought about it. I never, when I, when I left Twisted, I formed Desperado, I formed Widowmaker, people in the audience are going, who? Yeah, I know, they didn't do shit. But the point is, you know, I wasn't about, and even when I went out and played Twisted stuff, I played it as the SMFs, uh, not using the name Twisted Sister. And I would get very upset when people would call it Twisted Sister because that wasn't fair to the rest of the guys. So the five of us have reunited. Um, since then, AJ's gone. Mike Portnoy is, is taking his place for the remaining shows, which is very cool. Mike's an amazing drummer. AJ handpicked him himself. But we are saying farewell. But saying farewell, announcing your final dates 
falls so hollow in this day and age because everybody and their mother has announced their farewell tour and then come back and tour some more. It means nothing. It, I mean, Ozzy Osbourne, Nine Inch Nails, Judas Priest, Scorpions, Need I Go Kiss, Need I Go On. Oh, okay, let's go to off the, off the rock path. Cher, uh, Tina Turner. Um, you know, I mean, David, so many bands, uh, artists have said, here's our farewell tour, and they sold the farewell shirt, shirt. Remember Ozzy Osbourne's No More Tours? Remember that one, folks? That was like 20 years ago. And you, but we all bought it. We all sat with tears in our eyes. Could you imagine if you know, David Letterman came back a year from now and said, I was kidding, after all the fanfare of, of, him, of, his, of his farewell? No. When you call it a day, you're supposed to actually leave the stage and walk away for good. Not, not as a bullshit, come back a couple years later, I changed my mind. Scorpions did a three-year farewell tour. Fair enough. Okay, they got a lot of people they want to say goodbye to. I can, I'm cool with that. When it got to the end of the three years, they had, well, you know, there's a lot more work we have to do. Are you kidding me? Are you fucking kidding me? I don't mind you hanging around, but don't announce you're leaving. It's bullshit. And then when people do it for real, it makes it look like it's a hollow gesture. So people, Twisted Sister, are doing farewell shows about nine this summer, and then we're, gonna, we're, we're lining some up for 2016. Will not be tours. If we're playing, trust me, I'm not doing it again. Uh, now, in all, uh, one thing, you know, that means doing shows. We may, you know, if a charity says, hey, would you guys do a couple of songs for charity? That's something we'd get together for. If, uh, if Jimmy Fallon says, hey, you know, it's the, it's the 80th anniversary and we're not going to take it. You, wanna, uh, you know, we may get together and do something like that, a song here or there. But as far as going out and doing 60, 75, 90, two hours shows, done. Done. And you'll see people out there going, yeah, I'll believe it when I see it. I mean, Motley Crue, they sign contracts, but damn, I, as far as I know, it seems to be going, they're really stretching it. I thought they did their farewell show in Toronto a while. I'm, I may be wrong. If I am wrong, I, I'm, I apologize. But I know now it's, it's New Year's Eve. Is it 2015 or 2016? I don't know. But it's, it's sort of like they're stretching the date. But they did that whole contract signing because they're not full of shit. It's really happening. It's really over. So, all right. But to, I'm just letting you know, Twist Sister, 40 and fuck it. I don't know how many shows it's going to be next year. It's probably going to be only a few, honestly. So if you have an opportunity to see us, come see us. I'm not kidding. All right. Taking a break. When I come back, I'm going to have Wayne Kramer from the MC5, guitar, legendary guitar player Wayne Kramer, will be uh, in the studio with me. And I, I'm, like I said, I want to discuss the place of politics in rock and roll. And this guy knows that story. So stick around for more Snyder comments. What's up, everyone? This is Kellen Quinn from Sleeping With Sirens, and I'm turning things up as I bring you my new podcast, We Like It Loud, every Tuesday on PodcastOne.com. I've got exclusive interviews with the hottest bands on the scene, and I'm also going to be connecting you, the fans, as I answer Twitter questions and give you exclusive access to the music industry like no one else. So download We Like It Loud with me, Kellen Quinn, every Tuesday at PodcastOne.com. That's PodcastOne.com. Take 
Yeah, welcome back to Snyder Comments. D. Snyder here. That is the legendary MC5. Out of Detroit, Wayne Kramer in the studio with me. Wayne. Dude, I, 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 I'm like this born-again MC5 fan. <laughs> and I, I got to tell you, I mean, we're talk- what year did that record come out? 68. 68. All right, 68. So we're talking stuff that's almost... 45 years old? 50 years old? 50 years old. 50 years old. Okay. And at the time when it was released, I was aware of it and I was casually uh, into it, but I didn't, I got to be honest, I didn't fully get it. And what fully communicated to me was YouTube. Mm -hmm. Because, and and now I've watched the documentary, uh, a test of MC5, a testimonial, which is unavailable Except you pay an incredibly high price, and, and Wayne was kind enough to give me a copy. I don't know why that's unavailable. It should be out there. And, and I've watched that, and I've learned, and, and YouTube has allowed me to see so many videos. And I realized that I didn't... Okay, Electra Records found this band, found. Danny Fields' description of you guys coming out of the Andy Warhol world of New York City. And just how badass mm-hmm. and and sweaty and leather and tough and and just like that was just an w- amazing description of the MC5 as opposed to the New York bands around that the super hip super cool uh, shishi New York scene. Here's this this down and dirty, ugly, rough, mean Detroit scene, and he discovers it, and he and in his infinite wisdom says, I think the best way to to capture this, this band for the first album is a live album I don't think I understand his thinking but it wasn't until I saw you guys see he's and saw your how how electrifying you guys were the music and the visual the physicality of the band so I think that he was on the right path but they didn't have video back then. They didn't have no. a DVD. Right. If they if they had had that option, a DVD to, to give out of you got that would have just connected the dots for everybody. And yeah. I think because that's what it did for me. I call. I reached out to you through Twitter, Wayne, and <laughs> I said I just discovered Wayne Kramer. I, I, as odd as that sounds, and this guy's just a motherfucker. And Wayne tweets me back, goes, "Hey, thanks a lot." I'm like, "Holy shit, this thing's on." You know, oh, what I said was, it takes one to know one. Oh, yeah, I, I appreciate that. <laughs> and, 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 and then we wound up connecting and, and, and spending some time together and, and becoming friends yes. in a very short amount of time. Uh, and that's why I had to have you on the show. But yeah, the MC5, spend some time on YouTube, watch some of this, this, this just raw footage, and, and just reacquaint yourself on a whole other level. If you say you were an MC5 fan before, watch some of that stuff and know really understand the mc5 and i can only imagine what it was like in the room when that was going on 
Because I, 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 I also picked up that every song is virtually double time. <laughs> it's, 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 who plays every song double time and that's the funk influence that's the soul influence right yeah. there the double time james brown you know it's just every beat counts just yeah. mc5 amazing yeah. Yeah. well we it, it it became clear to me that certain kinds of music um generated uh bigger responses from people and and those kinds of musics were for example uh Gut bucket rhythm and blues, uh, uh, black gospel music, uh, certain kinds of rock, you know, uh, rock that rolled, you know, Chuck Berry music, yeah. uh, you know, up tempo stuff, stuff that moved your hips and, and moved your body, uh, and we uh, we called it high energy. We were able to, you know, like Bobby Vinton didn't do that for me. <laughs> yeah. James Brown did do that for me. And so we started to, you know, categorize different sounds as, as it was this high energy. And then we realized this was a principle that we could apply to the music we were creating. And that the more physical energy we could put in it, the greater the response from the listeners was the audience they would the more you put in the more effort you put in the more they gave you back and uh and so that became like the guiding principle for for the band's uh music well for the younger listeners out there people unfamiliar with mc5 understand this they are the well i don't say the inventors of punk but without the mc5 they are punk and metal mc5 were the bands that begat this music. I mean, there were other people helping out there with Blue Cheer, and there was bands mm-hmm. in Iggy, Iggy and the Stooges sure. who were, I just discovered, were in uh, your stable, with John Sinclair's stable they, they were, of bands. They, they were our friends and our contemporaries. Yeah, and, uh, from the Detroit area. We all hung out area. together and all listened to the same music and all played together and ate together and shared girlfriends and yeah, got they, loaded together. And, <laughs> and unloaded together. They, they, they begat what became punk and became heavy metal. And so if you're a, if you're a true fan of either of those genres, you want to know who influenced so many of the bands that you love, especially the, the, the bands that started everything, look at the Detroit scene. But in particular, we, with Ted Nugent and the Amboy Dukes, Alice Cooper, uh, if I'm misspeaking, please tell me, just, just say, D, you're wrong about that, uh, Iggy and the Stooges, the MC5, all coming out of that, from that, and with that, I want to say a darkness to them. Well, I don't. I, yeah, I an mean, aggression. There, well, there was there was a yeah an aggressiveness. Um, you know, Detroit uh, was uh, the manufacturing center of the universe. You know, if you wanted it built, we could build it in Detroit. Cars. We had heavy industry. We had the steel industry, and we had the auto industry, and all the related industries that fed the auto industry. And these were times, you know, after World War II, where America's economy was booming, and it, and it was really built on the automobile. You know, you, you, they started building. This is the big payoff for the guys that served in World War II. That's you know, right. The, the American dream, that, the, the promise. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. The promise. Land. Even beyond, my dad came back from Korea, and one thing his father said: "Come back alive." I'll buy you a car. Right. It was like it was like a reward. The 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 emergence of the two car garage, the two and a half car garage. Yeah. You know? The emergence of the car sticking out of the garage <laughs> because it couldn't fit. The car would no longer fit in the garage. 
So this, the, uh, the, you know, this required labor uh, and lots of it, human labor. And, you know, union, the, the organized labor movement was invented in Detroit and, and came to prominence in Detroit. The United Auto Workers were really protected the workers' interests. And uh, the factories went 24-7. There were three shifts. They would go all the time. So the concept of working hard is in the DNA of everyone that grew up in that era and in a few other cities around the country and around the world, you know, really blue-collar, hardworking people. They work hard, and we play hard. Yeah. And they wanted their bands to play hard. You know, when you went out to a club and you wanted to dance, you wanted to, you didn't want to dance politely and, and civilly and, and daintily. You wanted to get down. You wanted to sweat. You wanted to work it all out, you know. As, uh, as Tina Turner once sang, we never ever do anything nice right. and easy. <laughs> right. Yeah. You spend eight hours on the assembly line, you got to blow off some steam. So all the, all the bands that came out of that uh, all had that uh, high-energy approach. I, th- I think, you know, we consciously carried that message in, in our music and, and to the other musicians. And, uh, and uh, I think it was unique. It was, it was a time and a place where something happened that didn't happen anyplace else. Well, and this brings me towards the topic, topic I want to say. Now, there, um, the country was politically charged in the late 60s. Mm. Anti-war, there was a lot, you know, the civil rights movement, so much going on. And, 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 and the hippie movement mm-hmm. was a very pacifistic, in theory, movement. Mm-hmm. Peace and love, you know, do drugs and all that stuff. But in the Midwest, in Detroit, the movement was going on, but it was anything but pacifistic. In, in, at least it may have been intended to be, but there was a... That's where you saw the eruptions at the Democratic National Convention. That's where you saw violence occurring, and and even the your political active uh, the active the uh, activism of the MC5 with the White Panthers. This was not a pacifistic approach to change. No, the summer of love didn't make a stop in Detroit. Well, the love part did. I think I saw your your ass going up and down in a, in a clip in uh, in the MC5. Was that you? Fucking some chick on the stage? <laughs> I think it was you. But uh, there was the free love thing did, but not yeah. the, the pacifistic side of things. No, we, we, we took an activist stance. You know, the MC5 was uh, anti-imperialist, anti-racist, uh, anti-capitalist. Um, you know, from the get-go, uh, yeah, from, from your from, earliest meetings, where yeah. Fred and you and Rob spoke yeah. together, it was like almost a conscious decision about yeah. you guys. Yeah, because because um, we we felt things on a gut level, you know, that the, the contradictions that we saw in the adult world around us were unbearable, you know, that that uh, political leaders, that politicians, that priests that parents, that teachers, that policemen would say one thing and then do something else. You know, they're talking out of, out of their necks. Right. And, and uh, it was, it, we, uh, I just couldn't justify it, couldn't live with it, and, and really came to the conclusion that, the, that they were moving in the wrong direction. You know, I, I understood what the framers were trying to do with the Constitution. I understood the American experiment, this, this participatory democratic 
government and, concept. And it was rev- a revolution as well. Keep that in mind. It was a, it was a violent overthrow of the existing government. Well, we, we were young and, and we were, we were uh, incredibly frustrated. And, uh, you know, we thought we had all the answers and that we were going to live forever. But you weren't and, alone in that. No. It wasn't, the MC5 wasn't the only ones there. No. Uh, you know, uh, there was... Revel, I mean, the Detroit's burning. I mean, uh, the whole, the, 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 the civil rights thing going on there. There was so much. You weren't alone. It seems like the whole, the young people in that region were much more physical and aggressive in their uh, approach to get for it to change. Well, the MC5 really was just a part of a larger um, social movement that, all young people, in fact, not only just in our part of the country, but all over the country, in San Francisco, in New York, uh, and all over the world. You know, students took over the Sabon in, in France. The Mexican students stopped the government in Mexico yeah, but, City. Yeah, but, you know, and correct me, I was, I'm a little bit younger than you, Wayne, so, I, but it, it was sit-ins, and, 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 you know, there were, like, very... Pass, seemingly pacifistic. No, they they weren't they weren't so they weren't so peaceful. They weren't so okay. No, they're, they're, you weren't alone in your hostility. No, no. <laughs> they, they, listen, the, uh, taking a militant stance was the only way we saw that anyone would pay any attention to us. Um, you know, I, we felt like you know, you you had you you had to be the tip of the spear. You know, you had to be on the edge of the switchblade. You couldn't be in, on the handle. <laughs> you had to be up right. front to make something happen. And, uh, you know, we were, we were I mean, when, I, when we read that Huey Newton, uh, the chairman of the Black Panther Party, said there needed to be a group in the white community that did parallel work to the Black Panthers, we said, that's us. And, and, but you, you were a rock band. I mean, not, I'm, not, I'm not saying that you were wrong in that. I'm just saying it. They seem to be apples and oranges. Say, all right, we're this like great rock, we're the killing rock band, and we're all right. You know what? We're the White Panthers, and we're gonna go. We're doing battle. I mean, (laughs) are there better people qualified? No, you guys. You know that was really almost contradictory in a way. Well, not when you consider the fashion sense. I mean, the Black Panthers looked great. They did black leather jackets, berets, sunglasses. That was a good look. Yeah, I said, "Yeah, that's for me." I like, I like that. Well, you were the fashion monger in the MC5. I picked up on that. You know, setting setting the path. I mean, you know, Alice Cooper Band was in the Detroit area, coming out of Arizona, uh, but set up shop down there. And this is you guys were dressing up along with the Alice Cooper Band. Before that was like a popular thing to do. It was just you, you were putting on the frilly shirts and, and, uh, and, and well, forget about uh, Sonic Smith and su- superhero costume. Well, you know, we wanted, we wanted the show to be uh, a, a life-changing experience. We wanted someone to come to an MC5 performance and leave a, ch- a changed person. You know, we wanted to expose them to ideas and thinking and a performance that they had never experience before you know if i could take all the things that i loved you know the the sharkskin suits of motown the incredible rhythm sections of motown the free jazz of sun ra and john coltrane and albert eiler and the you know electric guitar sounds of jeff beck and pete townsend and and uh and then combine that with with uh, a context where we spoke directly to the concerns of our fans uh, you know, when when we stood on the stage and raised that 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 
power to the people fist and the kids raised it back, that's a direct connection that says, you know, our concerns are your concerns and your concerns are our concerns. You know, this kids emerging sexual confusion, you know, the kind of repressive 50s sexuality that kids were breaking you know that free love was uh, was yeah, uh, yeah. represented. You know the the idea that you know some kids like to smoke this herb that appears to be relatively harmless. Yeah, I can't believe watching a documentary how much pot you guys are smoking and performing with that intensity. I, 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 they seem to be. I don't you know I don't get never got high. They seem to be mutually exclusive. Well, I mean being but, that stoned and then going out and doing a frenetic, yeah. electrifying show. Yeah, but you're young. We're young. See, you got that. You got that youthful enthusiasm and the you know un, unbridled ambition. You know and and wow, uh, what would have happened if you guys weren't high? <laughs> we just got up there and spontaneously combusted but but you know you just point is it now it's okay so now you're yeah. saying here you are mc5 is like one of the you know is a, is a is a i'm not saying it's a plan but the three of you guys rob fred and yourself the, the founding original founding guys of the band you know you sit and you talk and it's something you were together for a long time and you it's it's a work in progress and you're constantly refining it and you you want to make the perfect machine mm-hmm. and you're just describing the perfect machine it's going to be this high energy mm-hmm. band and it's going to visually be compelling people are going to when you come you're, you're not just hearing it you're seeing it yeah. and then there's going to be this political edge to it it's going to be politically charged and unifying the audience and a mm-hmm. common cause mm-hmm. all these things and then you and i'm and i saw saw the documentary and you say it, at some point one of the things starts to overshadow the rest and and that seemed to be the political aspect of the band and i know living in new york being an early young teenager, I was aware of MC5, but when, I, when I'm watching you talk about this in the documentary, I'm going, yeah, I, I kind of remember that, that at some point in my mind, MC5 politics became more, th- were, were bigger than the band's music. Yeah. And, and, you know, and obviously that was a concern to you. Well, our, our stance... The things we represented, you know, to tell young girls to burn their bras and, you know. Yeah, keep doing that. (laughs) And, and, you know, that, uh, you know, if you find someone and you like them, then sleep together, you know, do your thing. And and, Yeah, uh, folks, I just want to tell you, it was an AIDS-free world back then. And the worst prop you had was the clap. clap, And then a little bit of penicillin and you were free to clear. Although the test was a bitch, I hear. (laughs) (laughs) Well, um uh but but uh well just talk about the political uh, the, the political you know what what our stance generated a, a response in the power structure you know the police for example the De- yeah. detroit police department we had an ongoing uh vendetta against us because of our managers uh con- uh um uh, you know, he embraced smoking marijuana. He didn't think that there was anything wrong with it. And yeah, well, most young people agreed with him. Yeah, John Sinclair, their manager, was a very popular re- figure, especially yeah, regionally. Yeah. Yep, yep. Uh, he, was a, a, he, he was a real trendsetter. Brilliant poet yeah. and still is. Yeah, know? and he, uh, he was an instigator, though. 
And yeah, and, and <laughs> he was and, not the right guy. If you were looking to stay clear of that, meeting up with John was not the right thing. You guys really fired each other's uh, other up, others well, up. Well, you know, he he was the only person that could really that could manage the MC5. We respected John, where we really didn't have any respect for show business type people. Um, and uh, so we, you know, there's the pressure from the local police, and then. We know now through Freedom of Information Act um, uh, documents that the Mitchell uh, Justice Department initiated a program called COINTELPRO where the FBI targeted domestic um, uh, groups that were anti-war, that were anti-establishment, domestic protests. And they were able to infiltrate uh, groups like the Black Panther Party, the White Panther Party, SDS, Students for a Democratic yeah. Society, um, the Yippies, uh, the anti-war movement, the civil rights movement. Um, we know now that the, you know they they tapped Martin Luther King's phones, they tapped our phones. Um, so uh, the pressure. Uh, w this is all above and beyond the regular pressure of being in a band yeah. <laughs> and trying to have a career, you know. Yeah. And and uh, it it started, you know, it it contributed to to the band's demise. It it really ultimately, uh, you know, the economic forces control bands. You know, we we all like to think it's all about the band. It's all about creativity. But th th this is an industry. This is an industry that's run on the fundamental principles of profit. No profit. Right. And uh, so when the MC5 turned out to be a bad investment for the business types, um, they immediately turned their backs on us, shuffled us off to the side. Well, did you feel that it was the, that the politics of the band were getting in, started, started getting in the way of the music? And we're, we're overshadowing because I know you no, consciously. I, but I think I tell you, I, I think it was just who we were. You know, when they said we had uh, creative control over our music, we had creative control over our advertisement, how they marketed us. Um, we took took them at their word. They said we control that, so we wrote our own ad copies. And when a local record store refused to sell our record because it had an alleged obscenity on it, we put out an ad criticizing them. Well, alleged. It actually said fuck in the streets in the, in the inside cover, did it not? And, and uh, <laughs> well, I mean, but, you know, that, that for one person, that might not be considered a, yeah, an obscene thing. Yeah. You know? Well, um, this is a much a, more conservative time. Actually. A hedge fund manager making $3 billion a year might be considered obscene to one. Oh, well, you guys just got a, would get arrested just for Rob screaming kick out the jams motherfucker for saying those words okay yes. that's 1968 yeah literally you're arrested in jail I, and by, by the 80s i'm saying motherfucker all the time but i crossed the line when i said suck my dick motherfucker and i got arrested in amarillo texas there it so is. it's there still it so we're still dealing and we're still dealing with the yeah. conservative even though it's it's become a little it's desensitized it's nowhere near the lenny bruce 
dream of it meaning, you know, just being a word yeah. in the English language right. is still objection to it. But it was, these were such volatile times. But bringing it's, it's it, hard to imagine in today's from, no, it is. from today's perspective. Literally, but, yeah. in the documentary, you gotta go, whatever you do, Rob, don't say kick out the jams, motherfucker. Runs out stage and says kick out the jams, motherfucker. And <laughs> and, and I think your drummer said, and there we go, back to jail. He, you know, yeah. we're in jail again. And he but, couldn't help himself. He gets so excited on the gig, and he'd be so into it, and he'd forget all about that. You know, the police were waiting in the wings. <laughs> this, this brings me to the question of. Is there a place for politics in in rock and roll in this day and age? Yeah, when I feel that when when an artist gets a, a, uh, you, you'll see the criticism when a musician or an actor gets too politically active, the bashing starts. Mm-hmm. Who is this guy to talk? Shut up and act. Mm-hmm. Shut up and mm-hmm. sing. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in back in, did you get? Was there any of that? From the from the audience in the '60s, or is it back then it was acceptable. It was just, hey, this is this is part and parcel. You know, we're politically active, and and people respect that. Uh, it it was uh, it, it was then and is now required in a democracy. If you don't like something, you're required to say democracy is participatory. It's not an abstract concept. If the government is doing has policies that you think are unjust, unfair, wrong, you are required in a democracy to say something so, about but, it. But the creatives, and, and, you know, and I'm not saying I disagree, I'm just saying, so you're saying the creatives should use their art to communicate their message. Well, clearly it's up to each individual to the degree to which they are concerned with the world around them. All right, well, let me give you case in point. <laughs> uh-huh. An old friend of yours... From Detroit, yeah. Ted Nugent. Yes. You guys go back to the day. Yeah. Amboy Dukes were out there when MC5 was out there. Yeah. You and Ted have known each other forever. Yeah. Ted has always, I think he's always maintained a consistent position, although I don't think people were as aware of it as they are today. Because mm-hmm. now, in his 60s, he is, he's on a political bent, and he is out there spreading the word of his belief system. Mm-hmm which I believe is totally his right. When I go to see him in concert and he's, I'm there to see him rock mm-hmm. and he stops the show. I don't say stops the show, but takes, uses the show as a platform to, uh, to use a spew has a negative commentary, but to talk politics, his politics as for me, for my money, I find myself saying, dude, I didn't pay to hear you talk politics i come if i you know if i want to hear your political i'll watch you on tv i'll come hear you do uh, i'll hear you come talk uh, publicly mm-hmm. do a uh, you know uh, motivational speaking mm-hmm. but i came here to see you rock and now you're putting me in the position that i I've, I've i don't necessarily agree with your position so i feel uncomfortable being here and rocking because my silence seems to be agreement Mm-hmm. And you're in a you're in a you're in an extreme position that I'm not in. This, this is in the TED situation particularly. Um, is there a line where uh, I'm asking yeah. you what you think? Yeah, don't don't buy the ticket. All right. So <laughs> so but but for TED, you know, the MC5 have sort of always were always this thing. And Ted, it seems, started to... And I'm using Ted as an example. I, I'm friends with Ted. I love Ted. And uh, this is not a Ted attack. 
I'm just trying to connect some, connect some dots here. Mm-hmm. Um, but Ted didn't do the political thing on stage. He did his gun thing. Bowen, he was always, mm-hmm. He's always been an advocate, Second Amendment, um, as I am as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but um, now it's become a part of his show that wasn't there before. Mm-hmm. So you're going to see Ted Nugent, the one, the guy you, you, you grew up on and you saw him before in concert, and now it's a, there's a political angle to it. Mm-hmm. Is that just say, hey, uh, is, is, should I just be saying, hey, this is Ted's decide, it's his show, he wants to do it, if you don't like it, leave. It's his show. It's, a, you know, it's his venue, it's his gig. If you don't like it, don't go to his gig. <laughs> All right. Well, you know, I, you know I've, and I've had, you know, I've had my own run-in with politics over the years myself, whether it's in the Senate hearings in the 80s, the PMRC, whether yeah. it was supporting... And you were brilliant. Well, thank you for stuff. that. Yeah. Uh, supporting, I was really proud of all you guys that, uh, that went and testified and, and kind of pulled the sheet off of this, this charade of, uh, of uh, you know, that, that somehow music uh, makes people uh, violent and antisocial, you know. Well, you see, or, but... Or books or movies or... Thank you for that. Poems or dances. Or. But going into that forum, um, I felt very comfortable discussing my... Uh, combating this. But afterwards... When Twisted Sisters went out and played, and every town we went to, there was a press conference. And the press conference, and I'm bombarded with questions, political questions about the, about the hearings. And one day I realized I'm not being asked one question about my band. Yeah. And I said, does anybody have a question about the music? Yeah. Well, what, and see, that, what you've done, what you, what you managed to succeed at is coming off of the entertainment page and moving over to the news page. Yeah, you you've ascended from the entertainment section to the news. Right, section. but but now the music had it, it had over over the, my statements had overpowered the music, and the music was no longer connected to it. And I stopped doing the press conferences at that point because I said, "Yeah, I, I got I, I made my point. I got out there. I spoke. Mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. I defended my position. But I'm here to rock, and you don't want to hear that. All you want to hear is my is my politics." So I want to take a break. Come back, Wayne. I, I want to. I just want to finish up this subject a little bit because I, I a couple more questions about this. But also, I want to talk about your charity work because rockers, in my position, a uh, little less politics. And I'm not just dis- disagreeing with Wayne, but as I, I, I say, but put some of that effort into well, charity work. Bef- but before yeah. before we go, there, there, there's another aspect to this that's worth. Uh, talking about can we talk about it when we come back from the break of, of course all right of course. we'll be back with more snyder comments d snyder and wayne kramer in the studio in a minute Back, you know I got the people to come out and let go there. I'm a 
Welcome back to Snyder Comments. That's the MC5 Rocket Reducer number 62. Yeah. I had so much trouble finding this track because I'm looking up Bad Mother. I'm looking up Man For You. Yeah. I'm looking up everything but ro- why Rocket Reducer 62? It's an uh, automotive paint remover. <laughs> but what? How does that go to the song in any way? Well, you, you pour it on a rag and you huff it. And you get fucked up. Oh, okay. So, so that's that was one of our uh, extracurricular uh, enjoyments. We would sit around in a group and we'd huff this paint remover. Uh, Don't try that at home, kids. Yeah, that so, was the sixties. Wayne is yeah. <laughs> Wayne is one of the only survivors of the I've, band. I've I've left a, a lot of brain cells behind. Yeah. So so we were talking about you know politics in art and politics in music. And here, here's, here's my take on it, that <clears throat> um, what, what we do as artists in the art, in the music itself, is we tell our stories. We tell the stories of uh, our own experience, uh, our experience in our, you know, in our family lives, our emotional lives, in our neighborhood, in our city, in our country as human beings on this planet we tell yeah. our stories um and uh if we're honest about the stories we're telling we'll connect with other human beings through the art the art becomes like the community meeting the the the, the uh uh if you love a, a particular song, a Bob Dylan song, for example, and I love that same song, then we've met in the middle in that song. Yeah, music it, is a very unifying, yeah, unifi- it, powerfully it, unifying it, thing. It's a connector, yeah. as is all art. You know, when Picasso painted Guernica, he, he, you know, he was criticized as harshly as you and I have been in rock music in the art world for painting a painting about the horror of war. You know, that there were body parts in the painting. Sure. That there were dead animals in the painting. You know, people were outraged, you know. But he wanted, as an artist, he wanted to tell the truth about what he was witnessing in the war. And some people saw that or read that or heard that or, uh, you know, and and connected with it and were moved and changed by it. Yeah. And that's and, what you're talking about. Yeah. And so... Uh, uh, what you know, what we have the possibility to do is to reveal uh, truths about the world around us to our fellows through the art. Um, you know, uh, music traditionally has uh, told stories about what people in the other, who was sleeping with who in the days of the troubadours. The troubadours would travel around from town to town, and they tell us a song about. You know, the prince was sleeping with the right. cousin of the king and uh, great scandal. And, and um, if an artist, if, if a per- artist as a person sees something in the world that they find disturbing, that they see, uh, is, that they want to expose, that they want to uh, instigate a conversation about and put that into the art and tell that story, then we become like the na- the neighborhood news service, you know. And it's not it's not that that in and of itself can change things. It's only a component in a larger um, set of uh, of a movement, you know, to 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 write songs about civil rights or about drug the drug war or to write songs about. Um, 
uh, crime or, you know, um, those are only, uh, those only carry uh, a feeling and an emotion. There's got to be a larger political perspective that this fits into. Right, right, right. right. So our influence as artists is limited, but is, it's still the most important that the, it's the artist's responsibility to upgrade his audience's listening taste, to, to um, expose the world around them. So in that sense, um, great art plays a role in, in the quality of our lives. It informs uh, our thinking about things. Um, we can't, artists can't change things alone. You know, great painting, a great song, is not going to change things, but it has a role to play. In. It can't give inspiration. Yeah. Now, we, you and I, uh, we've spoke about this, and uh, I just want, I want to talk about it on the show because it was just such, so powerful. Uh, and again, this is not about Ted Nugent. Again, I love Ted, uh, and so does Wayne. And Wayne is, and I'm not bashing Ted. Ted's just a really. Um, not only is he is he a strong example of politics and music, but also he has a history with Wayne uh, going back 50 years. Uh, they've, and they've known each other. So there's a connection for Wayne Kramer, MC5, Ted Nugent, and Boy Dukes back then. But you and I were talking, and you said that you uh, were with Ted, and you said, Ted, I want you to take a look at something. And uh, you presented him with a picture of you back in the 60s with an American flag and a gun. And right? a guitar. And a guitar. And a picture of Ted, was it today? Well, in, the, in modernage. Modern, yeah. yeah. With an American flag, a guitar, and a gun. And that, back then, that was left wing. Mm -hmm. Now, it's right wing. Mm -hmm. it's, 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 it's the same photograph back then. The right wing were up at arms mm -hmm. over the idea of a of a, a lefty, and I, and I don't know if we call you guys lefties, but still, you were politically charged yeah, and against we, the establishment. We were left of left. Yeah, left of left. Uh, you know, back then you couldn't having a, a, having an American flag. People, listen to this: having an American flag guitar, I think, may have been actually against the law. Yeah, it was. To, to, <laughs> people, if you made it was specifically if you made a shirt out of an American mm -hmm. flag or pants, mm -hmm. that was against the law. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, so the, the the MC5 the stage was covered with fl American flags, mm -hmm. guitars, American flags, and they were gun toting, not pacifistic, uh, left of lefties. You sh you show Ted these pictures, say Ted, I think there's something here. Mm -hmm. This this says something, mm -hmm. and Ted's re reaction was he, he didn't really see it. No, he didn't. He didn't. He, he didn't. He didn't clock it. He uh, and and I'll tell you this the. Uh, our, our, my experience with embracing the gun as a symbol of, uh, 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 as a strategy, as a tool for political change, um, was a big mistake we made. Um, yeah, you guys, again, this is the time, this is a peace and love, and there's a lot of photos of you guys with guns. Yeah, and we were, we were armed, and, and, you know, we bought into this, uh, uh, this fantasy generated by television and movies that, you know, you're going to shoot it out with the bad guys, you know, and it's, 
pow, pow, oh, they wing me, oh, and then you win, and the good guys win, and, the, and you know, somebody's shot, and they just fall over, and... Uh, yeah, they'll get up the, later on when you go to commercials. This, yeah. this, this, is, this is a fantasy. You yeah. know? This is like uh, action-adventure films today. These are all fantasies. Um, uh, what, what we didn't... We didn't think it through. We didn't. We did. We were young and we were. We were, you know, immature and and we didn't think through what the uh, what the repercussions were going to be uh, uh, using the symbol of the gun and uh, and embracing violence as a strategy. Um, and and what it got us was uh, for the Black Panthers, it got them death squads where Black Panthers were murdered in cities all across the country. Um, uh, uh, it got the MC5, of course, kicked out of the record business and the music business and show business um, and got us arrested and in, indictments and huge court cases, and, and some of us went to prison. Um, um, and I s- That's why I say that last song, Rocky Reducer 52, yeah. that's... That's I said I I texted I said that should be your theme song yeah, man right, I'm right. a bad mother baby yeah. for real so so you know and I, I don't think that that's I don't think that that's changed you know I think that the uh, you know even uh, on Ted's side of the political spectrum you know the em- embrace of the gun is um, not going to achieve uh, the political goal. Uh, you know the the NRA is a very powerful uh, force in American uh, life today, and uh, you know like these these uh, you know uh, is everybody proud of the, of these uh, these this biker shootout where you know nine people were murdered in Texas you know uh, because they all have the right to have a gun you know yeah I, that was I, crazy I just I I'm just asking these questions you know. Uh, Personally, I, my interpretation of the Constitution is, is a little different than the NRA's, and, uh, and I, I don't see a, a positive outcome um, with, uh, you know, I didn't see it in my day with, with my embrace of the gun, and, uh, and I don't see it in today's uh, political spectrum. Uh, I think it's, uh, you know, you just... You can't you can't control where these things are going, and you know the the trouble with guns is uh, uh, when they're around, people tend to get shot, and and it's not like television. You know, people get killed, and it's not television. I wonder if ultimately, you know, uh, physical violence has uh, has um, initiated real change, or ultimately, it's had to be changing people's perceptions. Which is going to come through words and comes through thought and comes through art, changing people's perceptions. Because you can put a gun to someone's head, and yeah, they'll they'll do what you say, but within themselves, you have not changed them at all. You've just made them bend to your no, will. No, no. And if and if we look, if we draw back, pull back, and look at uh, over history, you know, uh, we are getting actually better at being human beings. At at at. at, at the business of living well, we're getting better. We live in the safest time in the history of the yeah, world. Yeah, absolutely. Violence is at an all-time low, and it con- it's a trend that's not going to reverse. Uh, it, it, it continues to diminish over time um, as um, our wisdom <laughs> and, uh, and, our, uh, uh, and our politics catch up. You know, like from, from the earliest period of time where records were kept 
uh, as much as 30% of the known population died in wars. Today, it's less than a hundred thousandth of a percentage point die in war of no. the population of, of human yeah, beings. We're getting better at being human beings. We're, being, we're doing better. Look, yes, before sir. I run out of time, there's something I want to talk about, and that's your charitable work, because um, it, it needs to be recognized, needs to be appreciated, and, and people need to be uh, elevated in the sense that realize there's work to be done out there. Um, your charity is called? Jail Guitar Doors. Um, la last night, I was in the Los Angeles County Jail. As you are on a weekly basis. Every Wednesday. It's great I to, when, you, when you reach out to Wayne, they go, oh, he's in jail today. And that's the first time I got that message from his wife. I'm like, he's in jail today? What is it? <laughs> I have no idea what that means. She said it so casually. Yeah. Like, I was to understand, and I found out that you work with prisoners. Yeah. Uh, through a musical... Uh... Yeah, what we do is, is simple. We find people that work in corrections that are willing to use music as a tool for habilitation. I, I say habilitation rather than rehabilitation because most of the people in prisons were never habilitated in the first place. Now, by the way, that's something you taught me when we first spoke. I've used that phrase, habilitation. Yeah. It should be adapted. Yeah. Adopted, I should say. Yeah. Uh, um, and uh, what we do is uh, we provide them with guitars mostly, sometimes some other instruments. Um, today, our guitars are in over 60 American prisons. How long have you been, have you been doing this? Now? We started in 2009. 2009. And having been in prison yourself, you, you see the need and, and the value in this with, with habilitating prisoners. And, and, and you know, listen, I, I, uh, I'm, I'm sensitive to victims' rights. I, I'm, I, I know violence is real. Violent crime is real. Um, terrible things happen in the world. Um, but if we look at the percentages of the population in American punishment, we have 2.3 million people in prison in America. Um, about 10% wow. of them are, uh, are incorrigible, violent offenders who have, are so damaged that they can only relate to other human beings violently. That leaves 90% of whom, if, if incentivized, given the tools, tasked to change would happily change because they don't want to go back to prison. Nobody likes, and I, I get it. People say, well, you're not supposed to enjoy prison. But, but, but what, what the prison experience is isn't what people think it is. You know, again, I think, I think is, is informed by movies and television, and that's, that's not what it is. Um, so what we know now through empirical studies um, prisoners that are involved in arts and corrections programming have a 75% lower recidivism rate. So, when, so what do you do with your program in jails? We, we challenge the prisoners to use the guitars as tools. We don't give the guitars as gifts. We're not gifting anybody a guitar. Right. Um, we're saying that the people that donate the money that pays for these guitars are sending them a message. And the message is they believe in them. They believe they want to come out and rejoin their friends and family and participate in, in the deal out here. But you don't just the teach them how to play guitar. No, we don't teach anybody. You they, create, already know, they already know how to play guitar. You create art. You create music, allowing them to respond. 
to express themselves we want, as you and I have been yeah. fortunate enough to do, yep. to scream, we're not going to take it, yep. to scream, kick out the jams, motherfucker. Yep. You give them that voice. Right. We, we task them with telling their story. You know, write me a song uh, about how you got here. R- write a song to your mom. Write a song to your son. You know, I'm sensitive to it. I'm a new dad. And I know that these guys in there, lots of them are fathers. You know, write a song to your son and explain to him what happened, how you got here, what you can do to make sure you never come back to these places again. Um, And in the process of writing that song, it will change them on a fundamental level. Uh, It's the damnedest thing that uh, a Los Angeles County Sheriff's deputy told me, Wayne, we've been locking people up in California for 200 years. Hasn't worked yet. (laughs) Um, Maybe we could try something different. You know, because education is important. Half the people in California's prisons are illiterate, can't read or write. Um, but if I educate, he says, if I educate a criminal, I've got an educated criminal. He said, so it needs to be a change of heart, something deeper than education. And the only things that do that are art, art, and actually organized sports. That's cool. <laughs> organized sports because there's a structure there. There's something for you to do that is a way for you to militantly oppose what the prison system is telling you. And the prison system is telling you you're worthless. You have no value in this world. The architecture itself tells you that. This program, because uh, we have to wrap the show up, is not just in Los Angeles. It's all over the country. How many prisons around the country? Our, uh, well, the guitars are in over 60 American prisons. We have a wait list of 50 more now that people know what it's we're It's a great doing. program. It needs funding. And that's, you know, it, and this is the difficulty with all charitable things. You got people volunteer who volunteer like Wayne to do the work, go in there, go to jail every week and work with these people. But... They, it needs funding. How can people help? Jailguitardoors.org is our website, jailguitardoors.org. You can go there. You can learn everything there is to know about who we are, what we do, how we do it. And if you can help us, help us. It's, it's in our own interest to actually be involved in the correcting part of corrections. You know, to, We have a golden opportunity with people in prison. We have a chance to have them focus on what went wrong and what can they do to make sure they don't do that again. It's a great cause. And I, want to just, I just want to conclude with this thought. Uh, I, do, um, I do a lot of charity work, uh, and I've been honored recently uh, for that work by different organizations. And one of the organizations said to me, um, D, you know why we chose you? It was, uh, it was Long Island. Uh, and I said, well, I assume it's because of my work with the March of Dimes and, you know, and autism and things like that. They said, no, because there was nobody else. <laughs> and I said, what do you mean there's nobody else? They said, oh, people sign a guitar or people, you know, they'll donate, make a donation uh, or musicians. But actually, actively chair or work or put together a charitable events or charitable organizations, very few people, musicians, actors, actually take that kind of action. So bravo, Wayne Kramer. And if any musicians are listening out there, use your position as an opportunity to help others give back, like me, 
make up for the 80s. You know, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a chance. So Wayne's making up for the 60s and 70s. So I'm making up for the 80s. All right, Wayne Kramer, thanks so much for sharing the show with me today. Uh, everybody, uh, spread the word about uh, Snyder Comments, and I'll see you next week. All right, thanks, D, and thanks to all our mainline mellows out there.